Well, good afternoon, and thank you for two very kind and generous introductions. Um, it's been great to be back at, uh, at UVA, and uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't have wished for a more friendly faculty and student uh, um, group to, uh, to, to spend time with. The question of war crimes is, is, is complicated because of the politics. I don't believe that there's anybody in this room or anybody at, uh, uh, on this campus or any other campus of any university in any, in any democratic nation that doesn't believe that war criminals should be held accountable. That's, that's the easy part. Uh, criminals generally should, should be held accountable, whether they're war criminals or uh, um, uh, rapists or burglars or uh, uh, who, who, whoever. Um, should, should be held accountable for two reasons. Firstly, justice demands it. The victims are entitled to it. And it, it, it certainly f uh, acts as some sort of a deterrent. I think in, in any society, the, the crime rate will depend on the efficiency of the criminal justice system. If you have efficient policing and efficient, and efficient criminal justice, uh, the, the, the crime rate will be lower than in a country where you have an inefficient uh, a criminal justice system and obviously where you don't have a criminal justice system at all where you have a, a broken down state whether it's Somalia or other unfortunate places around the world uh, the the crime rate will be will be rampant and uh, I don't believe it's any different in the international community if you have a, an efficient and fair and competent international criminal justice system the the crime rate, the uh, rate of international crime, will be lower than if you don't have any system at all. Uh, clearly, no matter how efficient your criminal justice system is, whether domestic or international, it's not going to put a stop to crime. That, that's human experience. There will always be some individuals who think they're going to get away with it. But, but the more people, the more would-be criminals who think they're going to get caught and prosecuted and punished Clearly, some of them are going to be deterred. Now, when it comes to international criminal, criminal uh, international crimes, war crimes, the, the position is exacerbated because you have a very bad record of domestic prosecutions. Very few nations uh, at all have adequately brought their own war criminals to justice. In too many countries, and particularly in oppressive societies and non-democratic societies, war criminals are usually hailed as war heroes. And the last thing that their governments are going to do is attempt to bring them to trial. Even in democracies, the, the, the record is not very good. Um, uh, even, in, even in the United States and in Western European democracies, the, the, the number of war criminals who have been brought to book is, is, is exceedingly low uh, when it came to when it came to crimes committed by United States members of the armed forces in uh, in Vietnam the, the 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 response was very tepid uh, the, the the most uh, widely known was was the Mi Lee massacre and uh, and the, the the prosecution of middle rank people the senior people uh, not 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 unusually get uh, get get let off the hook. Uh, it was a very it was a very weak response. 
uh, and uh, the, it, it's, it's been similar after the, after the uh, uh, First World War. The, the prosecution of uh, German war criminals in Germany was, was, was almost non-existent and people got off with a slap on the wrist. That began to change with Nuremberg. It was to the great credit of the United States that there were trials at all uh, at Nuremberg. If it wasn't for the United States push, there wouldn't have been trials, and Winston Churchill might well have got his way. Uh, he, he, notor he, he infamously wanted the, the Nazi war criminal simply to be lined up and executed uh, without, any, without any trial at all. Uh, it was the United States, under the leadership particularly of the then Secretary for Defense, Henry Stimson, uh, who, who convinced President Truman uh, that, that, that dealing, dealing with it uh, in, in the way that Churchill wished uh, wasn't consistent with, with, with fairness and democracy and would be stooping uh, to the level of the Nazi leaders themselves uh, if, if they were not to be given a fair trial. And of course the, the test is, and the, is in the result, that a number of those war criminals were in fact found not guilty uh, by, the, by, the Nuremberg, by the Nuremberg judges. But it was, it was Nuremberg that, that led the way and began a debate, a serious debate, about how to deal with, with war criminals, particularly uh, in international armed conflict. It's only in the, in, in, the year, in the decade since then that civil wars have proliferated and you've had since, since 1948 well over 200, probably more than 250 civil wars in which tens of thousands of people have been killed in each one of them and millions of people killed in some of them uh, that the issue has arisen uh, not only for, for international uh, armed conflict but also non-international armed conflict. But because of the Cold War, uh, there was a, a vacuum, and uh, after Nuremberg, it was anticipated that there would very soon be an international criminal court. One sees reference to it in the, in the Genocide Convention of 1948. One sees reference to such a court in the Anti-Apartheid Convention of 1973. But, but nothing happened for almost 50 years, be mainly because of the Cold War. And it was again the United States that pushed uh, in the uh, uh, early 1990s for an international criminal tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Without that push from Washington DC, it wouldn't have happened. I don't think there can be any doubt about that. The United States led the Western European nations to push the Security Council to set up the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and uh, that, that was uh, uh, agreed unanimously by the Security Council. It was the end of the Cold War in 1989 and there was a window, there was really a window of time when Russia and China were prepared to go along with the Western permanent members of the Security Council and agree to an international criminal tribunal. Um, the genocide in Rwanda followed suit um, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, 19, uh, in 1994. Uh, it's the 21st anniversary of the Rwanda genocide this week. On the 7th, on the 7th of April it was 21 years since, since that worst genocide since, since the Second World War. 
And the African country in which it happened, Rwanda, happened to be on the Security Council and requested an international criminal tribunal for Rwanda. Well, the Security Council, having set up one for Europe, could hardly turn to the African, uh, to, to, to the African continent and say, well, we do it for Europe, but we don't do it for Africa. So we, we, we had a second tribunal uh, being set up for, for Rwanda. Those two tribunals really gave a huge impetus and, and caused a resurgence of an interest uh, in international humanitarian law. It was obviously taught in, in, in good army colleges in, in, and certainly in most of the democracies, but until the late 1990s, I don't believe there was a law school anywhere in the world that had a full course on international humanitarian law, on criminal law, um, and for good reason. Uh, th there was no call for it. There were no jobs out there uh, for, 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 for prosecutors or uh, lawyers, uh, generally speaking, in international criminal law because there was no court uh, in which, in, uh, certainly no international court in which it was practiced. So there, there was this huge, this huge new interest in international humanitarian law as a result of the, the two UN tribunals and their success in turn encouraged the international community uh, to, to take it further and again it was the United States push under the leadership particularly of, of, of Madeleine Albright when she was ambassador, uh, the United States ambassador at the United Nations and later as Secretary of State in the Clinton administration. Um, it, it, it was really the, the push of, this, of, of that administration that encouraged um, Kofi Annan, who was then uh, Secretary General of the United Nations, to call the Rome meeting uh, in the middle of 1998 to discuss a, a statute uh, setting up an international criminal court. And it was, it was virtually on the way to Rome, or shortly before the Rome meeting, that the United States policy to the international criminal court began to change and become negative. And certainly I was, I was involved at the time, both as chief prosecutor of the two UN tribunals and as a, a strong supporter of the international criminal court, and I know from my friendship with the people who were representing the, U the U.S. in Rome, David Sheffer and, and, and now President Ted Moron, the president of the Yugoslavia Tribunal, uh, and, uh, and other members of that delegation, how the attitude of the United States began to change almost overnight. And that change really came as a result of objections from the Joint Chiefs of Staff. They, 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 they began to have second thoughts and were suspicious uh, of, an international, of an international court and they believed, absolutely in good faith, I have no doubt, they believed that an international criminal court would almost certainly have a, a, an anti-US bias, that you would get judges from Cuba and Libya and, uh, and other and other places who would, who would use the International Criminal Court politically against the United States. And of course it's happened, in, at least in one notorious case, not too many years ago, the, the uh, government of Serbia 
uh, brought, brought un, uh, uh, under the then leadership of, of Slobodan Milosevic, himself a, a notorious war criminal, but he brought a case against NATO, all the NATO countries under the leadership of the United States, alleging that they had committed genocide in, the, uh, in their campaign to protect the Albanian population of Kosovo. And that, that was a ridiculous claim, but it certainly brought, brought about a situation that had been feared by the United States, that international law in that respect and uh, the, the Genocide Convention would be used uh, to bring a trumped-up charge against the uh, United States. The United States reservations made it clear that the United States wasn't subject to, to, uh, to, to the... There, there was no jurisdiction against the United States uh, under the Genocide Convention because of the uh, reservations when the, when the United States ratified uh, that, that uh, uh, convention and the, the case had to be withdrawn by the judges against the, uh, against the United States. The case never went to trial. It was, it was, a, ridiculous, it was a ridiculous claim uh, by the government of Serbia, and it, it, it sort of just, just, just quietly, quietly disappeared. Um, but it, it, it does give some, some support uh, for, for the fears that were expressed uh, in, the, in the middle 1990s or the late 1990s, when the United States was one of only seven countries at Rome that voted against the, uh, the statute for the International Criminal Court. Um, that's the one problem. And it's a problem that the United States, it's a problem for the, for the International Criminal Court that the United States is not a party uh, and actively involved uh, 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 as a member of the Assembly of States Parties. I know from my own experience in the Yugoslavia and Rwanda tribunals that, that without the full support of the United States, firstly, those tribunals wouldn't have been established, and having been established, they wouldn't have succeeded. It was United States uh, 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 resources, human resources, physical resources, financial resources, and particularly the, the economic might of the United States that made those tribunals uh, successful to the extent they were. There wouldn't have been the high-profile Croatian generals who voluntarily gave themselves up. One can imagine how voluntary it was under the, under the leadership of President Tudjman, but, but ten of them s surrendered uh, uh, themselves for trial uh, in, the, uh, in The Hague, uh, and that was only as a result of the United States threatening to withdraw uh, the then pending one point, uh, 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 I think it was $1.2 billion of aid uh, through Croatia. It was a similar uh, aid of over a billion dollars to Serbia that got uh, the, the uh, successor president to, to Milosevic to bundle him onto an aeroplane and send him for trial to The Hague. Um, uh, the United States also played a hugely important role uh, in, in Rwanda. Just to give you one, one uh, example that, that might, well, it doesn't, probably doesn't even sound petty, and it certainly wasn't. When the Rwanda tribunal was set up, the United Nations were just about insolvent. Uh, the United States Congress was going through a, one of its regular pendulum swings of, 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 of not paying UN dues because of anti-UN anti feeling, and the UN was just about insolvent and couldn't afford 
to send us furniture and computers to the Rwanda Tribunal. The, the initial staff that I, that I was able to assemble, uh, and I'm not exaggerating, literally used Coca-Cola boxes as desks and chairs. And we had to scrounge paper and pencil. There were no computers available. And somebody whispered in my ear that there was a warehouse, a UN warehouse in Brindisi on the east coast of Italy that was full of computers and full of furniture that weren't being used. I made inquiries and sure enough that that was established. I called the then chief of peacekeeping who happened to be Kofi Annan and said, can he assist? This is the position. We need furniture and computers. Called me back very quickly and said, I've got good and bad news for you. He said, the good news is that the furniture and computers are there. He said, the, the, the bad news is that we can't afford to send them to you in Rwanda. I called Madeleine Albright's office, David Sheffer, and within less than 48 hours, a United States transport plane was, was, was put at our disposal to bring the furniture and computers to Rwanda. So just, just one, of, one of many, many examples I could give of the importance of the United States support for the, uh, uh, for, for the Rwanda Tribunal, and as I've said too, uh, it applied to the Yugoslavia Tribunal. The politics was, was important uh, at a different level too. When I arrived in The, uh, in the Hague as, as effectively the first chief prosecutor of the Yugoslavia Tribunal, and we started issuing uh, indictments and the judges started issuing arrest warrants, I simply assumed that there were then UN troops in the former Yugoslavia. I took it for granted that a UN tribunal issuing arrest warrants, the, the UN troops there would arrest the people who were subject to the arrest warrants. But no, I was, I was amazed and disappointed because the, 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 the military people said, look, we're not policemen. We, it's not our job to go and arrest criminals. Uh, we, we fight wars. We, we don't go and arrest people. And then, uh, uh, and there was nothing, uh, uh, no, nothing that, that my efforts uh, could, uh, could do to change that. Then came the Dayton Agreement that was brokered by United States Ambassador uh, uh, Holbrook, Richard Holbrook, in, in, in November 1995. And as a result of Dayton, there were now NATO, there was now a NATO military force, again led by the United States, and for the first time there were United States military on the ground in the former Yugoslavia, in Bosnia. And I thought, well now, the United States, great supporter of the tribunal, now will start getting people arrested. But again I was naive and wrong. Um, uh, the, the, the United States military took the same view. The Joint Chiefs uh, took, took the view that this wasn't, that, that it was called mission creep, that, that was the buzz phrase at that time. And uh, 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 Ambassador Holbrook in fact complained that the, the leader of the NATO forces, United States Admiral Leighton Smith, uh, was not prepared to give instructions uh, for arrest to be made. I had two very friendly meetings in, uh, uh, in, in Washington at the Pentagon with the then Secretary for Defense, um, uh, William Perry, and he was very open. He said to me, I agree with you. These arrests should be made. It's in the interest of peace that they should be made. But he said, this President, President Clinton, is not going to buck the view of the Joint Chiefs. 
And he said, I might agree with you here, but he said, that's not going to happen. And of course, of course, he was correct. And it, it, it went further. I, I requested Admiral Smith to give me a few members of, uh, of the NATO force to safeguard mass graves that we were busy ex uh, exhuming. We had an American uh, NGO called Physicians for Human Rights from Boston, now New York, um, to exhume mass graves. And we, were, we, were, we, we had two worries. The one was that they'd been booby-trapped, which was an obvious thing to do, and the, the second was that they would be interfered with at night uh, when, the, uh, when the exhumation was going on. There were bulldozers and workers and, and, and forensic people. And I requested Admiral Smith if he would give us some protection and whether he would prepare to use uh, the, uh, the equipment they had, uh, demining equipment, to check for booby traps. And he refused both. He said, this is not our job. This is mission creep. We ended up getting a Norwegian NGO to use sniffer dogs uh, at great danger to, to both to the, to the dogs and to the human handlers uh, to, 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 to assure us that the, that the mass graves were not booby-trapped. And Admiral Smith refused to give us any, uh, any troops on the ground to safeguard the, uh, the, the, the mass graves. So, so the, the, these are the sort of difficulties with enforcement that, that, that I... Uh, 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 had to contend with uh, in the uh, case of the former Yugoslavia. Um, in the case of the International Criminal Court, similar, similar problems. We know that many, many arrest warrants issued by the International Criminal Court have not been carried out, uh, particularly in the Sudan, uh, where, where very serious war crimes uh, were committed. The, the, the there's an indictment for genocide out against President al-Bashir of the Sudan in a case referred by the Security Council. And the Security Council has done absolutely nothing uh, to, to ensure that its referral to the International Criminal Court uh, is made good uh, by, the, by forcing the Sudanese government, and they could do it. Um, without the use of any military force, there could be appropriate sanctions against the Sudan which would virtually force uh, the, the government of a not very wealthy country to, to change its view uh, to, the, to the indictments issued by the International Criminal Court. Similarly, Libya, referred to by unanimous resolution of the Security Council, arrest warrants being ignored, and the Security Council doing nothing. And it's got to the point where the Chief Prosecutor uh, has, has had to inform the Security Council you're not supporting us, we cannot continue with these investigations and we're suspending them uh, until, until you do something uh, actively to, to support us. So there, 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 there are many problems faced by the International Criminal Court. The attitude of the African countries is, is an important one. Africa is complaining that, that all of the seven situations before the court come from Africa. Uh, it's, 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 it's not a reason for African complaint, it's an excuse. It's, a, it's an excuse mainly put forward to protect leaders. Before leaders were indicted by the International Criminal Court, there were no complaints from African leaders. But when leaders started to be indicted, President al-Bashir and President Kenyatta of Kenya, then it became too close to home for many of those leaders, and the African Union has complained. 
I have no doubt, and I say it, I say it with, with some degree of shame as an African, if tomorrow six or seven non-African states were, were, were uh, to come before the International Criminal Court, I don't believe this African attitude would change at all. And the reason, as I say, it's not, it's not a good reason, it's simply an excuse uh, to protect leaders. And it's not supported by civil society, something often ignored. Civil society, non-governmental organizations in Kenya, f if, for example, strongly support the work of the International Criminal Court and don't agree with the attitude of their leaders uh, in opposing what the, what the court is doing. Um, I know that Colonel Cherry is going to talk about the United States attitude some more, and I don't want to, to preempt what, what he's going to say, uh, but, but, but let, me end, let me end by saying that, that without enforceability, the whole system breaks down, and uh, the, the, the jury is out on the efficacy of the International Criminal Court. I have no doubt that today, if there wasn't such a court, world leaders would be setting one up, uh, because people are not simply prepared to sit back anymore and allow the terrible war crimes that are being committed uh, to, simply, uh, uh, to, to simply be met uh, with impunity and no accountability. Okay.